0: You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. All right, come on back to your seats if you would. Grab some final coffee and pastries if you want. On your way back, if you want to grab one of the Esther scripture journals that we've gotten for you, so you can use it throughout the series. Feel free to grab one of those. It's a great way for you to follow along and take notes throughout the series if you, uh, if you want one of these. Otherwise, if you don't own a Bible and like would like one, we have some hardback black Bibles that you could use there as well to follow along. Uh, we're in Esther chapter 2 this morning. We're gonna, the sermon will focus on verses 1 through 23, but I'm only going to read verses 5 through 23 here in a moment. We're continuing our series that we've called Ordinary People, Extraordinary God. And throughout the series, we're going to see how God works through his people to do remarkable things. And we have a lot to cover today, and so we're just going to jump right into it. In our passage today, what we'll see is that we are introduced to two of the main characters of the story, and the tension of the narrative continues to build. And so if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. As I said, we'll start in verse 5 of chapter 2. We'll read through to verse 23. So Esther 2, beginning in verse 5. Says this. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away from Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle. For she, was neither, she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Hegai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Hegai, who had charge of the women." And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she, was, she would go in, And in the morning, she would return to the second harem in the custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants, It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigfin and Teresh We'll grab a seat and I'll pray for us. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that in it we do learn about who you are and what you have done for Israel. And here we see the way that you are working behind the scenes to bring Esther to this place that one, one day she might intercede for your people. So God, I pray now as we read this and study it and try to learn what does it look like for us to live a life in exile, in this current age. God, would you help us to know how to be faithful to you and to respond well. God, would you help us to see what it, what it is that we would not see if not for your spirit. Open our eyes that we would behold the wondrous things found here in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In February of 2022, Aaron Wren wrote an article called The Three Worlds of Evangelicalism, published in First Things. And at the end of his first paragraph, he wrote these words, where once there was a culture war between Christianity and secular society, today there is a culture war within evangelicalism itself. He goes on to say, these divisions do not only represent theological differences, they also result from, and here... I bolded this phrase, particular strategies of public engagement that developed over the last few decades as the standing of Christianity has gradually eroded. Today, I'm not interested in waging war through my preaching in this way. However, his statement represents one of the realities that we all feel together. We have entered a time in history where America is what we would call post-Christian. However, his statement represents... One of the ways that we have fought with each other over, at times, maybe the wrong things. But we ask ourselves, how do we engage publicly? Those who follow Jesus are wondering what that means for them. How are we meant to live in a post Christian world? In Wren's article, he suggests that our journey to becoming a post Christian nation has gone through three distinct stages over just the last 30 years. Before 1994, society was mostly positive toward Christianity. From 1994 to 2014, it was neutral toward Christianity. And beginning in 2014, we entered a time that he calls the negative world, in which culture was mostly negative toward Christianity. He then attempts to track the different strategies that Christians have used to engage publicly in response to these movements and why it has led to so much infighting. And here's why that's relevant for us today. One of the questions we are asking ourselves is how do we live as followers of Jesus in a post Christian America, where our way of life is at times thought of as odd, our views of life at times thought of as foolish, and our commitments sometimes thought of as evil? Last week I made the comparison to our current cultural moment and that of exile. The Bible often uses the picture of exile for the life of a Christian. And many have argued that the stories of exile in the Old Testament like this here, Esther, are helpful as a model for us to make sense of how to live in our cultural moment. And one of you even reached out to me with questions, great questions about how it is that we live in exile, because there can be many misunderstandings around this and even maybe, maybe misconceptions. If we are in exile, does that mean that we are just weak and incapable of any agency in the world or that we should not advocate God's moral vision in the world? Does it mean that we should be oppositional and at times become antagonistic toward those who might even be hostile toward us? Well, life in exile is not simple. It's not simple enough to just give you a one-word answer, a one-phrase answer. Christians in America are trying to find their footing as culture shifts at a rapid pace. And based on Wren's article. We went from a society that was positive toward Christians to one that is negative toward Christians in just 20 years. In the scope of history, that is a rapid pace of change. And Christians are unsure of how to get their footing. Throughout this series, we're going to try and help give you a positive vision of how we live in exile. We are not weak and passive, nor do we need to become antagonistic. In our passage, Esther uses the agency she does have And she partners with God to become queen. And Mordecai uses his agency to uncover a plot to murder the king, which will become very important later in this story. And so the primary message of the sermon today is this, that our agency in exile requires us to intentionally trust and respond to God's initiative in the world. Our agency requires us to intentionally trust and respond to God's initiative. And I use the word agency here because we do have the ability to act, but we never act alone. It is evident throughout history, even as Mordecai and Esther display their agency, they do so in a way that reveals God's initiative throughout the story. And so, for our outline today, we're going to talk about three potential responses to the crisis of exile. The first is wisdom in exile, the second is worry in exile. And the third is worship in exile. And I want to help you see that the first, wisdom, can lead to the third, worship. But I also want us to see the dangers of the second. So first, let's talk about wisdom in exile. In our passage here, we're introduced to Esther and Mordecai for the first time in the story. And there's a moment of crisis that requires wisdom. In verses 1 through 4, the king is, or his anger from chapter 1 has gone away and he realizes that he misses his banished wife, Queen Vashti. So his advisors suggest that he finds a new queen. And so he starts this elaborate plan to gather young virgins from all over the land and choose from among them. And many of these vi- women would spend one night with the king, never to be called on again unless the king happened to remember them. And they would spend their lives then under the care of one of the king's eunuchs, separated from their family, living in what would be the equivalent of functional widowhood. This is not a good life for them. And this builds the tension because Esther is gathered up with these virgins. Esther was beautiful, as it says in verse 7. She had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And she was also wise and shrewd. On three different occasions, she won favor with others. In verse 9, with Haggai. In verse 15, in the eyes of all who saw her. And in verse 17, with the king. So he makes her queen. And the word for favor here is the word hesed, which is the same Hebrew word for God's covenant faithfulness. It's a very subtle way for the author to call to mind to his readers the faithfulness and the favor of God to his people. The favor that Esther receives is the result of both God's providential care for his people and her wisdom and knowledge in how to respond to others. This is one of the ways that we see Esther's agency in exile and how she responds to God's initiative. She didn't make herself beautiful. She she wasn't in the womb and said, hey, God, make me beautiful, any more than she made the king gather all the virgins. She, she didn't do those things. She responded with wisdom in the midst of the opportunities and the circumstances that were in front of her. A similar dynamic emerges for Mordecai in the story. At the end of chapter 2, he is standing at the gate and he overhears the plans of Bigthan and Teresh as they plotted to kill the king. Mordecai discovers the plan and then he reports it. And Mordecai is standing at the gate, which means that he is likely working for the government as a magistrate or as a judge. It's very possible he was given that position by Queen Esther after she had become queen. And once again, we see agency in exile as Mordecai responds to the opportunities that are given to him through God's initiative. And if you've ever been to a youth soccer game, especially with young kids, one of the things that you'll observe is that half the time, They're just watching the game happen around them. They're on the field, they're part of the team, but they're watching the other players play. And sometimes we think that's what it means to live in exile. We mistakenly believe that we've lost all of our agency, that we're on the field, but we don't know how to participate in the game. In both Esther and Mordecai, we see examples of people who use the opportunities that God had given them Through their initiative, their wisdom, and their excellence, they're able to earn the favor of those around them and position themselves for the work that God wanted them to complete. So, contrary to some of the teaching and mischaracterization, life in exile for the Christian does not mean passivity and it does not mean weakness. We are meant to pursue excellence in exile our agency will require us to respond to the initiative of God in our lives and the opportunities that he gives us. If you're a young professional in the room and maybe in your first career, let me encourage you, excellence in exile means that we are not content to simply hide among our coworkers. In the rise of narcissistic leadership trends and a despairing financial outlook, it is reported that many young people struggle to be motivated because they are unlikely to have the financial stability of their parents. And if they do pursue excellence, they might be accused of selfish or silly motivations. What the world needs is not passive and despairing Christians who have decided that because the cultural moment is opposed to their faith, that the financial moment is restrictive of their future, or the leadership moment is suspicious of their motives, why not just shrink? Why not consider a good day to be one in which we go unnoticed? Now, I'm not telling everyone you have to become the CEO or you have to become a government official, but even in exile, our agency is expressed when we partner with God and respond to his initiative, and that means we pursue excellence in the things that we do. This is also true of the educational environment, there is a massive disruption happening in the realm of education. We do not need to despair in our cultural moment. As those who follow Jesus, we can use our agency and pursue excellence and take seriously the education of the next generation. Whatever domain of life that God has called you to, whether in finance, carpentry, or government, if you're, or in your family or in your neighborhood, exile does not mean passivity or weakness, but in wisdom, we use the agency that God has given us as we trust and respond to his initiative in the world. The reality is that for many Christians, wisdom is not what defines the response to this exilic moment. Worry is their dominant response. And so we'll talk about the second response to exile, which is worry in exile. There are many reasons why this could have been the case for Esther and Mordecai as well. Let's consider the perilous nature of the situation in which they found themselves. Even though God provides for them and they find astonishing favor, they are also incredibly vulnerable in this moment. The beauty pageant that Esther is enrolled in was a precarious situation for her. The regimen for beautification, the extra food parcels, and the adornments may have appealed to some women, but for any virgin taken from their home to be entered into this pageant, this was not a great life. And even if you won, that meant you became the queen which we saw in chapter 1, was still not a great situation to be in. In verse 8, Esther is taken into the king's palace and put into the custody of Haggai. She didn't volunteer for this role. She was taken, forced to participate. And this mirrors the fact that her people had been brought into exile, which we just read about a few verses earlier when Mordecai is introduced in verse 6, where his family is taken into exile with Jeconiah. So here they are in a foreign land, forced to participate in this charade, and it seems like they have little agency at all. And here is where the worry might set in. What do you do when you feel like you have very little ability to do anything at all? Whether in the case of Esther, or maybe for us in our cultural moment. Here are two common responses to worry in exile. We can feel helpless, or we can grow hardened. First, we can feel helpless. Now, there are many details in the story that we don't get about Esther. For example, why did Mordecai insist that she hide her Jewish identity, which the author references twice? There are many theories. One might be uh, the rising anti-Semitic trend in Persia at the time, if there was one. Another might be restrictions on whether the king could even marry a non-Persian. The motivation is not entirely clear. It is also possible that she hides her identity out of a feeling of helplessness, out of inevitable compromise. Another related question is, why does she not follow through on the Jewish dietary laws? Daniel and his three friends, they get themselves into conflict with the Babylonians because they refuse to compromise on the dietary laws. However, for Esther here, this isn't an issue. When given the food parcels by Haggai, she eats them, or at least everything we can tell she does. Maybe she thought that if she became queen, she would need to eat with the king on a regular basis and was, it was inevitable. She was helpless to keep these dietary laws anyway. We, we don't know all the motivations. And in fairness to Esther, these moral questions are far more complicated than simply saying that she felt helpless, so therefore she compromised and she should have been more faithful like Daniel. She does not ultimately abandon her Jewish identity. She maintains relationship with Mordecai. She advocates for her people at great risk to her own life in just a few chapters. The book of Esther is not trying to tell us whether her decision to hide her identity was good or bad. Only that it happened. The book is trying to tell us that in the midst of a situation that feels helpless, it never truly is we will be given opportunities to express our agency as we trust and respond to God's initiative. The other response is to grow hardened. Rather than to become helpless, we would grow hardened. In this case, Christians see the contrarian environment of their exile and position themselves in opposition to the predominant culture, always to be at war with culture, either in an attempt to overcome it or to cloister in separation from it. And people who want to harden themselves against culture naively appeal to Daniel because at least three different times, Daniel and his friends showed defiance in exile. First, they refused to give up Jewish dietary laws and are tested by the king's steward at risk of their own lives. Second, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego famously refused to bow to the golden image and are thrown into the fiery furnace. And third, Daniel violated the law by continuing to pray three times a day And so he was thrown into the lion's den. In each of these examples, Daniel and his friends displayed remarkable faithfulness to God in opposition to a culture that was contrarian to their faith. And in each example, God showed remarkable faithfulness to them. So people who favor a hardened response to the culture around them will appeal to Daniel and his friends rather than Esther. But that would ignore the fact that Daniel and his friends were always respectful Always deferential to their government, never looking to pick a fight, and often rewarded with high positions of leadership in government. Like Esther, they found favor with their king. Esther and Mordecai do not grow hardened any more than they are helpless. Daniel and his friends are deferential as much as they are defiant. The strategic and moral decisions that God's people have to make in response to a post-Christian culture will not always be easily discerned. We should not be overly simplistic, and our response should neither be helpless nor hardened. Both of these responses betray the same root cause in the end. Both are the result of putting our hope and our trust in earthly institutions, Our agency in exile requires us to intentionally trust and respond to God's initiative. But if we are trusting in human institutions, then they will inevitably betray themselves as an insufficient place to put our hope and our trust. And here's how that happens. If there is nothing outside of creation that is going to define good and evil for us, value, worth, and meaning, then something in the created realm must do it for us. And whatever we have given that place of authority, it has now become off-limits to our critique because our life depends on it being good and beautiful and true. This is how we become consumed by political religions. This is how Hitler's Germany emerges or Pol Pot's Khmer Rouge. This is how they come into existence. If we have given our hope to a nation, a political party, a social theory, or a religious institution, they will become unquestioned in our mind. Because my meaning has become so dependent upon their existence and they will harden us toward anyone or anything that seems to threaten the institution that I hold dear. Because it is a threat to our very meaning in life. Or it will lead us to feelings of helplessness. If we feel like that, feel like we can do nothing about the threats to our way of life, then we will compromise or we will be crushed. But if we find meaning, value, and worth from something outside of creation, From the God of creation, then we know that any human institution can fail, but that never means that God has failed. He is always at work, often in ways that are unseen or even unknown. And this keeps us free to critique the institutions that we are part of, even as we work through them to promote God's good design in the world, doing our part for the flourishing of humanity, always ready to be agents of change in the world. Because we are intentionally trusting and responding to God's initiative. And because our trust is in something outside of creation, we do not need to worry in exile. We can use the wisdom that God gives us, and it will lead us to the third response, worship. In all of life, or if all of life is lived in response to God, then all of life is lived in worship, and our lives in exile can be a constant display of that worship. Now, let me give you three characteristics of Christians in exile that display our worship of God. Humble, hopeful, and happy. First is humble. Worship in exile means that we know our need and we trust in our God. And because we trust in our God, we are radically independent of the constraints that human institutions want to put on us. We are always free to critique them because this world is not our home. And because we know our need, we are radically humble. We are humble enough to listen to others, believing they have something good to offer. We are humble enough to interrogate our own hearts as much as we do others. Something that is fundamental to our doctrine as Christians is that we are imperfect people, which means that even if we are right about Jesus, and even if we are right about God's moral vision for the world, and we believe that we are, That doesn't mean that we're right about everything or that we are capable of always living up to even our own standards. And something else that is fundamental to our doctrine is that God created the world good and he put his image inside of all people. And because of his common grace in the world, even people who reject Jesus will have good things to contribute at times and will at times live up to our standards even better than we do. All of this should produce humility in us. When we think about life in exile, How to live as Christians in a world gone mad. We should be marked by humility, not weakness and passivity, not helplessness, but humility. The second is hopeful. God's people were sent into exile with a promise given through the prophet Jeremiah that God would eventually bring them home. Esther and Mordecai would have been familiar with this promise. And I wonder what they thought when Haman made a threat upon the lives of every Jew. Did they question whether God would, in fact, bring them home? Did they wonder if God would deliver them? We worship a God who has always redeemed situations that felt entirely lost. This is one of the primary themes of the Bible. God's people are in a situation that feels helpless. All seems lost, but it never truly is. Because with God, there is always hope. The early part of the book of Esther is building the tension for us as a reader. Over and over, they find themselves in helpless situations. Mordecai's family is brought into exile. Esther is taken from her home. All the Jews are threatened with death, but they are never without hope. We live in exile as people with hope because when all feels lost in the world, God intervenes. That is what Jesus' disciples felt. After he was crucified, they thought they had found the Messiah, the one who would bring God's kingdom and set all things right in the world. But he had just been murdered. He was dead, buried in a grave. And in Luke 24, there's this compelling scene in which two of Jesus' disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus started to walk down the road with them, the risen Jesus walking down the road with them, but they didn't know who he was. And they looked sad, and so he asked them, Why are you sad? They responded by saying, Haven't you heard about all that is happening? That Jesus of Nazareth was condemned to death and crucified? And in verse 21, they say, But we had hoped he would be the one to redeem Israel. These poor men, they had believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the one to redeem Israel, but he had died. And here they are, three days removed from his crucifixion, wondering what God was going to do. And what a common experience we can all have. Not in response necessarily to Jesus' crucifixion, but in response to life's circumstances. Wondering if God is going to do something about the situation. How is God going to redeem what feels so lost? How is he going to work for the good of those who love him? What happens when you're in exile and it seems like you have no ability to fix the situation? What happens when sickness ravages your family and you feel helpless to do anything about it? I want to encourage you even to stop for a moment. Imagine you're walking down the road and your mind is consumed by whatever is making you feel helpless right now. And Jesus is there beside you and he says, what is making you so sad? And you think, well, because I thought God was going to redeem this situation. I thought he would repair what was broken. Now, I cannot guarantee that God will redeem your situation in the way that you want, but I can encourage you to put your hope in the God who does redeem. The men who were walking with Jesus were blind to the fact that they were walking with the risen Savior. They did not realize that their hope was, in fact, secure. They had, in fact, found the one who would redeem Israel. And when they got to where they were going to go and stay the night, they sat down at the table and Jesus broke bread. And he gave it to them. And when he did, their eyes were opened and they saw him, realizing that the one in which they had put their hope was in fact alive. It is easy to be blinded by our helplessness, to be hardened by those who are antagonistic to our faith, but we worship the risen Jesus, not the dead Jesus. That is it is a constant reminder that God is victorious. This world is not our home and we are never without hope worship and exile means we are people of hope our humility and our hope free us also then third to be the happiest people on earth not happy clappy fake happiness but deep and abiding joy because whatever comes our way we have a god who gets the last say helpless and hardened people are curmudgeonly, curmudgeonly and calamitous they are always angry with the world in the way that has made their lives worse. They're always serious about their work because they feel responsible to remedy what is broken on their own. And when our hope is in created things, they are always in danger of being destroyed, which will make us anxious and angry. But if our hope is ultimately in the God who made all things, the one who came and died, who now reigns over all and above all, then nothing in this world can be so devastating or devious that it will steal our joy." I was recently presented with this image of life in exile as people who are guests at a dinner party. Rather than think of ourselves as weak and helpless, as though compromise is inevitable, rather than think ourselves as people building a castle to keep the world out or raising a sword to wage war, what if we imagined ourselves as guests at a party? Isn't it curious that Jesus was invited to so many dinner parties by everyone? Pharisees, tax collectors, families of his disciples. He must have been a good party guest because he kept getting invited back. He was always hopeful, humble, and happy. He was respectful to the host, but never compromising. He challenged them out of his convictions, and he used his agency to promote God's vision in the world. And what if we were humble, happy, and hopeful people like that? Or in the words of King Loon at the end of C.S. Lewis's Horse and His Boy, to be a king means when there's hunger in the world, as must be now and then in bad years, to wear finer clothes and laugh louder over a scantier meal than any man in your land. What if we were known as happy people because we are hopeful people, laughing louder over less because we know that our hope does not rest upon the created realm? Our agency and exile requires us to intentionally trust and respond to God's initiative. We are never without hope. And we are never helpless. And as people in exile, let us be people who watch for the ways that God is calling us to respond to his initiative in the world. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.